Uh, tonight we continue on in our series in First Corinthians, um, and we're thinking about uh, the subject of the series title is a new life, uh, and we're taking time over the next few weeks to unpack uh, what it is that Paul emphasises as he speaks about the importance of the resurrection, not just for Corinthian believers. In reality, what Paul says to the church in Corinth applies to every single one of us and all that we face and to all believers uh, throughout human history. Um, if you were with us last week, you'll know how much Paul emphasises the importance of the resurrection and his point in all that he unpacks is you cannot claim to love and live for God uh, if you do not believe the resurrection was a historical reality. Um, past tense. And at the same time, from last week, Paul underlines the fact that you cannot claim to love and live for God if you do not recognise that the truth of the resurrection is a future promise for every single one of us who are in Christ. Uh, and tonight, we're continuing this theme of resurrection. We're thinking about what it means to have new life. Uh, and the subtitle is In Christ, A New Life in Christ. So if our passage uh, tonight, uh, Paul is answering and responding in essence uh, to what are two very simple but very important questions. The first one is this, why do we need the resurrection? And the second one is how is the resurrection made possible? So why do we need the resurrection? And how is the resurrection made possible? And tonight we also want to ask this final question, what should our response be today? Uh, so let's take a moment to unpack 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22. I'm reading from the CSB. Christian Standard Bible, and the words will be up on the screen as well. So Paul writes these words to the church in Corinth. Paul says this, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Let's just take a moment to pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you that, that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And we pray tonight that, that you would uh, speak to us, Lord. We, we pray that we would be changed, we would be transformed, we would be moulded by your word so that we become more like Jesus. Help us tonight, Lord. Guide us. Transform us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if there's one thing uh, that we can be certain of, and particularly in light of all that we witnessed this last week, it's the fact that death is as certain as life itself. Death is as certain as life itself. None of us will escape it. We all have a, a date set in the future. It's a date determined by God when this very life that we live will come to an inevitable end. And despite the fact that we know this, it still comes as a, as a surprise. The reality of death does not sit easy with any one of us when it touches our lives in some way, particularly through the friendships and relationships that we have. Uh, when those around you whom you know and love pass away, is it not the case that you're more often than not taken aback, more often than not we're shocked by what has just happened? Why? Why is that? Because death was not part of God's original design. God created this world free from sin. So death, therefore, goes directly against the original purpose for which we were made. So there's a, a shock element when we experience it. And not only that, but we also have to immediately come to terms with the physical separation that death brings. Whatever your opinion is on the royal family, none of us can get around the fact 
that Queen Elizabeth II was an important cultural icon. You might even say a central cultural figure in our nation. Personally speaking, even though I never met Her Majesty, I've never known a time without the Queen in my life. And now that she's passed without question, a part of what many of us always knew has also passed away too. Um, it's difficult for me to get my head around anything other than the Queen not being a central figure in this nation and culture. So when I hear the word King, when I hear people speak of King Charles III, I'm kind of reprogramming my brain to accommodate that idea. And it's perhaps just terminology, but it's just difficult to process. We no longer have a Queen, we have a King. At a broader and deeper relational level, death has that effect as well, does it not? The reality is that when someone we know and love, when they die, we all have to come to terms with a new normal. Just like going from queen to king is a new normal for us. When someone in our lives dies, we also have to come to terms with that new normal. We're all moulded differently in some way as a result of someone else's death. When someone passes away, something of us passes away too. And we're often left asking questions about our own life and our own inevitable death. And that's important for us, not just for tonight as we reflect on this passage, but also for our entire lives. And it's healthy we do that. It's healthy that we think about death in a healthy way as well. And not in a kind of morbid way, but in a way that, that gives us an accurate picture of why we're here. The more we have an accurate picture of death, the more and more we will have an accurate picture of life. Death is at the very heart of what it is that Paul speaks about here in this passage. And not just in this passage, but in the entirety of Paul's New Testament writings. In fact, in all of Scripture, death has a central theme. And we begin tonight by asking this question, why do we need the resurrection? Why do we need the resurrection? We do so because this is a, the question that Paul answers within these verses. And the answer that Paul provides is rooted in the stark reality that death is over all of us. Death is something that none of us can escape. No one in this room is going to live on forever and ever in this current set of circumstances that we call planet Earth. We will all die one day. And none of us can escape that. Let's read these words of 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22 again. So Paul says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Paul says here that death came through one man. One man. His name is Adam. And because death came through this one man, then everyone after Adam, which is every single one of us, everyone watching, everyone throughout human history, we will all die too. And we, we read how this all came about in Genesis chapter 3. There's a very accurate picture of how it is death came into the world. And in our Esau Bible study, which we start on Wednesdays. We, we actually spent time looking at this passage last week. And it's such an important passage on so many levels. So many of life's questions can be answered when we have an accurate understanding of what is going on within Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read that God created everything that we see in our natural world. Everything was good. Everything had a purpose to bring glory to God. So over the course of five days, God created light and darkness day and night, sky and earth, and sea and plants and trees and fruit and vegetables. Vegetables were before the fall, by the way. 
and the sun and the moon and fish and birds and animals and creatures. And God looked at all of us. He looked at all of us and he saw that it was good. And what God was doing here was he was displaying his loving good, goodness and kindness to his whole creation. God looked at all of it and he said, it's good. And then in the final day, the sixth day, we read that God created man in his own image. And he created a male and female. And God looked at what he had made, man and woman, and he said something else. He said it was very good. He didn't say it was good. He said it was very good. Because man and man was created in the image of God. And the purpose of all creation was for it to reflect and be in perfect relationship with its creator. All of which was a reality right up until Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis 3, what we read of is Satan tempting Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had clearly told Adam and Eve not to eat of that tree. In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, we read these words. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And yet, here we have Satan questioning what it is that God had said to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3 and in verse 1, we read this. Satan says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Then in verses 4 to 5, the devil reinforces his words with this. No, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the question I have for us tonight is this. What is, what is Satan doing here? What is Satan doing here? What is his tactic? What is his motive? He's basically saying to Eve, God does not really love you. Therefore, God cannot be enough for you. God does not really love you. Therefore, God cannot be enough for you. And anytime you and I sin, this little sermonette that we have preached and are preaching to ourselves is this. God does not love me. God cannot be enough for me. Even in Adam, take the fruit and they eat it. And they do so because at the heart of what it is they're doing is this particular lie. It's a subtle lie. It's a powerful lie. It's a lie that changes the course of human history. And in those occasions where you and I sin, when we think, say, or do something that goes against God, we believe this lie as well. We say to ourselves subconsciously often, God does not love me. Therefore, God cannot be enough for me. Just as a wee side note uh, tonight, we often think that the first sin was Eve taking the fruit and then eating the fruit that God had told her not to eat. It's not true. The first sin was Adam. Genesis 3, 6, we read that Eve took some of the fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So the first sin was Adam abdicating his responsibility as a head of that relationship, allowing Eve to believe the lie that God was not enough and then allowing himself to believe the lie as well. So you want to know why so many men in our society and our world throughout human history are lazy, ridden with excuse, blaming everyone apart from themselves, lacking any sense of responsibility. Can't say for definite, but my theological hunch is because their oldest ancestor was Adam and they come from a long line of many Adams, right back to the original Adam. And Adam was someone who would rather sit and do nothing and watch than stand up and take action. 
This lie affects all of us, men and women in different ways. And on Wednesday during our Esau Bible study, we actually took time to read from the children's resource about Jesus' story about Bible. And the truth is, every adult should read this Bible. It's just such an, an incredible work. Sally Lloyd-Jones, in unpacking this particular moment in our history from Scripture, um, she wrote this in the Jesus story book, book Bible. She said this, Eve uh, picked up the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too, and a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. So as we reflect on Genesis 3 tonight, in light of our passage in, in 1 Corinthians, without question, this is the oldest lie. This is the most deceptive lie. This is the most powerful of lies. This is the most common of lies. And the truth is, some of us tonight need to stop listening to that lie. Some of us need to hear the truth today. And the truth is this, God does love us. God really does care for us. God longs to be in a life-transforming relationship with each one of us. So choose today who you're going to believe. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the world and the flesh and the devil? Or are you going to believe Jesus and his promise for you? Uh, Oswald Chambers is most famous for his devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. And he shared this about the battle we experience between our own sin and the love that God wants to pour into our hearts. Uh, so he says this, um, we have to recognise that sin is a fact, not a defect. Sin is red-handed mutiny against God. Either God or sin must die in my life. If sin rules in me, God's life in me will be killed. If God rules in me, sin in me will be killed. And the truth is, it's more than mutiny. It's more than mutiny. Paul actually explains elsewhere the consequence of believing this lie, of living a life that's marred by sin, rebellion against God. He says in the first part of Romans 6 and 23, he says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And the wages of sin is death because sin at its heart is this belief and a lie about God. And this decision to believe in that lie about God is in effect rebellion against God. And to actively rebel against God is to actively rebel against the source of all life. Life is in God. So when we separate ourselves from God, we are separating ourselves from life. Therefore, we die. So death is a consequence. And it's an immediate spiritual death. And it's a subsequent physical death. So we are spiritually unable in any way whatsoever to love God and live for God. None of us resurrected ourselves to bring us to that place where we can respond in faith to Christ. We were all dead in our sins, but God in Christ saved us. And physically speaking, we reflect externally who we are internally. We age, we get ill, we will all eventually die. Every single one of us here tonight will one day die because we have chosen to reject the one who is life itself at some point in our lives. And Paul says in Romans 3.23 that no one has and no one will ever escape this. He writes, for all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If all have sinned, then all will die. And the reason why death has a 100% success rate is because no one apart from one has managed to live completely free from sin. So it's important we come to terms with this or these ideas from our passage. Sin is not just something we do. 
sin, in light of all what we've just looked at, sin is also something of, of who we are. It's in our nature. We are, by definition, sinners. Just take hold of that for a moment. By definition, it's part of our identity. We're sinners. Paul says again in 1 Timothy 1.15, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I am, I am the worst of them. So he says, am. It's his identity. Paul didn't say here, I sinned worst of all. He also believed that to be true as well. He believed his sinful actions were the worst. But when Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. So it's much more serious for Paul than for us. When this idea of sin is a fundamental part of our identity. We are sinners, it's who we are. And Paul says he was worst of all of them. And let's be honest tonight, we know this to be true. How often do you find yourself saying something or doing something or reacting in a certain way and then you think to yourself, where did that come from? Where did that come from? I just came out of nowhere. I said that, I did that, I reacted in that particular way. And the truth is, it came from your nature. This is who you are. This is what your entire life was defined by before you came to life in Christ, if you have came to life in Christ. And even after you have come into life in Christ, we can't ignore the fact that alongside this new identity, we're a new creation, we're saints, we're transformed by his grace. We still carry this, this other identity. We're sinners. The flesh still lives within us. So why is all of that important? We've unpacked a lot there. Why is it, all of this important? Well, as we look to answer this question, why do we need the resurrection? We can be confident that we need the resurrection because we are all sinners. Sin came through one man, Adam, and this has impacted every single one of us throughout history. And the particular and powerful impact that sin has is death, spiritual death and physical death. And there's no escaping this. As much as we might try and ignore it, so much of our world tries to delay it, our sins will one day find us out. So we're in desperate need of a resurrection. It's not something that we should probably move towards. We're in desperate need of a resurrection in Christ. And all of this brings us on to the second question, which Paul effectively answers from this passage. Number two, how is the resurrection made possible for each one of us? How is the resurrection made possible for each one of us? So let's just take time to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. So Paul writes, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And let me just be clear, as we take time to look at this resurrection emphasis within this passage, you could probably say that he emphasises both death and the resurrection simultaneously. When Paul says here that all will be made alive here, Paul is not saying that everyone will be saved. Everyone will be in Christ one day. Paul's not saying that. So you only have to do a survey of the rest of Scripture to understand. But it's only those who are in Christ, those who have this love relationship with God, they are the ones who will be made alive. It would perhaps be an entirely different scenario if Paul simply wrote here, so also all will be made alive. But he clearly conditions that sentence with the phrase, in Christ. In Christ, all will be made alive. This phrase in Christ so important for us tonight. This is something we looked at last week as well. This, this emphasis of Paul, this witness with, with Christ. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in him. 
Paul underlining that our being made alive is only ever possible through the resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection leads to our resurrection, what it is we unpacked last week. And it's only through Christ and Christ alone that we are then made alive, that we are then given new life. So as we think about this idea of in Christ and how it connects to Jesus' resurrection with our own resurrection, we can't separate the fact that the resurrection is only ever possible because of the crucifixion. <clears throat> and the crucifixion is only ever possible because of the incarnation. In other words, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus are the only reason why it is we also can then live in Christ. It's the only reason why we can then die in Christ. And it's the only reason why we can then rise in Christ. His life becomes our life. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. God in Christ completely transforms the outcome of our entire lives. What was the worst news of all time? The fact that we are sinners destined for death, complete separation from God, does in fact become the greatest news ever. All because of Jesus and his life, death and resurrection on our behalf. So have a look at what, how Paul explains this in Romans 6 and 15 to 21. And in many regards, this passage in Romans is almost like an unpacking of, of these two verses we've spent time looking at in 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul writes this in Romans 6, starting in verse 15. That the gift of God is not like the trespass, but if by, if by the one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, <clears throat> resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So there's a lot in that. But in essence, Paul here is saying that instead of us receiving condemnation and sin as a result of Adam's original sin, we instead receive justification, we're made right with God, and righteousness, we're transformed by God's goodness and grace through Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And Martin Luther describes this passage and other passages almost as like the great exchange. We hand over our sin to Jesus and he in return gives us his righteousness. And Paul explains this in even clearer language as we continue to read on in Romans 6, starting in verse 18, Paul says, So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, I've got one of James's toy eggs in my hand. And I want you just to imagine that this egg represents all of the sin in your life so all of the wrong that you've done everything you've said everything you've done everything you've thought that's went against God and not just the things that you've done wrong the things that you should have done which you didn't do so both sins of commission and omission 
when you, when you run to Jesus, when you make that decision to make Jesus Lord of your life, when you realize you can't move forward any longer unless you deal with this sin problem in your life, what's happening in that moment? Oh, in that moment, you're saying, Jesus, I can't carry this any longer. I need you to take this from my life. And the Bible says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The Bible also says that he that knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we become the righteousness of Christ. So we give this sin over to Jesus. Imagine us transferring this sin over to Jesus. Look where that leaves you and I. We're free. We're completely free. We're completely free. The sin that weighed us down is no longer there. He has taken our sin. He has died for our sin. He has risen from the dead. So we're free. And praise God for that. And so often, this process of, of giving our sin to Christ and then living a life of freedom, we so often take it for granted or we so often assume that we really do understand it. And yet the reality is, we're so often busy to really contemplate the reality of what this means for us. And the truth is that Christ lived amongst us, he died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. And, and the problem for us is, we struggle to believe that we really are free. So even though Jesus has taken our sin, we still hold on to our sin. And sometimes we have this kind of Jesus plus mentality and we think, well, Christ did this for me, but I need to deal with this new sin in my life. I need to, to work harder or, or be better or, or be more godly in order that Jesus might forgive me of this, of this new sin. And the truth is, it's an absolute gift. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present and future. So if we have given our sin over to Jesus, we continue to do that. That's called repentance. We, every single day we come to God and we ask, Jesus, would you cleanse me? Would you renew me? Would you transform me? That's grace. Grace is a gift. We don't need to, to work really hard at removing this, this new sin in our lives. We just need to confess and be cleansed and renewed. Whom the Son has set free really is free. We're no longer under condemnation. There's nothing there. And as we've already looked at uh, tonight, yes, the wages of sin is death. But Paul continues that sentence. I only read one half of that verse. Paul continues and he says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly what it is. It's a free gift. A free gift. All gifts are free. If a gift is not free, it's not a gift. No one can take credit for any gift that they receive. Otherwise, it would not be a gift. And with every gift you receive in your life, think of all the moments where someone's blessed you with a gift. Is it not the case for this little moment of vulnerability where your only response is to recognize the giver and give thanks towards the giver? And that's what we do when we give our sin over to Jesus and we experience this transformation. We experience the righteousness of Christ. All we can do in that moment is to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. It's amazing. I mean, there's no other faith or idea or philosophy. There's nothing else that compares to the truth of the gospel. This is how the resurrection is made possible for us. Through Jesus, through his life, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. So we can say today, as Paul said, 
to live is Christ, to die is gain. No matter whatever sin and suffering I might face, no, what, no matter whatever sin and suffering you might face in your life, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I know that Jesus will one day make all things new, including my own body. Some of you might have heard of, of Johnny Erickson Tada, and you might be aware of uh, her story. And her story, in many ways, is just a blend of, of tragedy and hope. She became a, a paraplegic as a young woman after she dived into, short, into shallow water and broke her neck. And it was in the aftermath of her paralysis and suffering that she met with God. Her life was completely transformed. She was in her hospital bed and someone came to her bed and encouraged her with sensitivity to give thanks in all circumstances. And she was really hurt by those words. <clears throat> but the more and more she meditated on this, this command from scripture to give thanks in all circumstances, the more and more she realized she had to do that in the midst of this paralysis and disability. And so she, she started to, to give God thanks in light of what she faced. And, and God transformed her life. She met with God. She became a, a sinner who was saved by grace. And God has never healed her. Um, she is still paralyzed today, still significantly disabled. She just, just went recently through a, a difficult season of cancer. But most importantly, God has changed her heart. God has completely, completely renewed her life. And instead of a life defined by her own sin and brokenness, even a life that could have been defined by her own disability, she was completely transformed from the inside out and she has and she continues to this day to look ahead to this glorious hope of the resurrection. And a number of years back she shared of what this promise of a resurrection means for her in the midst of her suffering, her disability, her brokenness as a sinner and as a sufferer. So she said this, I still can hardly believe it. With shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscles, narrowed knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me, or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy, promises new bodies, hearts and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ the heart and people find such incredible hope. So let's just take hold of all of that for a moment. There's a, there's a lot in that. We've spent time thinking about sin and death and this promise of a resurrection. The final question for us tonight is this. What should our response be today? What should our response be today? And as we respond tonight to all that God is saying through his word, I want us just to take hold of these two sides I've just mentioned. <clears throat> the depth of our own depravity and sin, and at the same time, the abundant hope and joy that we can find in Jesus and his promise of resurrection. And this passage is such a helpful word for me, because for me, I know where it is I need to start. I need to begin by recognising my own sin, as Paul does. I need to respond with repentance day after day, confessing sin. This is not where I'm going to finish. I'm not going to spend the entirety of my life focusing on my sin. Each and every day that God gives me, I'll start with repentance, but I fix my eyes firmly on Jesus, as the writer to the Hebrews says, as the author and perfecter of my faith. I look to the one 
who created me, the one who rescued me, the one who will one day transform me, all through the resurrection, and all because he loved me. So, as we now just in a moment move into a time of worship, and my prayer is that you just take a moment in the midst of our time of singing, or even beyond that, where you very simply just ask for a repentant heart. You come to him, you confess your sin, and you recognise that I can confess my sin today because he has made a way for me to do that. And you take hold of the fact that the cross is sufficient for each one of us. Not only do you in this moment take time to be repentant, but you also choose to be expectant. So repentant and expectant. Expectant of what God is going to do in your life. Expectant of what God will do in your life in the future. Expectant of who you are now and who you are becoming because of Jesus and the resurrection. So yes, we are sinful. Yes, we do suffer. Yes, we are broken. But it doesn't end there. We're new creations. We're transformed by God. We're looking to Jesus as the one who lived, died and rose for each one of us. So that people might look at us and they might see Christ, the hope of glory. So we're going to move into a time of worship tonight with this kind of posture. Our heart's posture is one of tremendous thanksgiving for all that Christ has done. And if you, you feel tonight you would want some prayer, um, then do speak with us. And we recognise that we go into a Sunday often carrying a lot. It could be circumstance. It could be <clears throat> something we feel overwhelmed by or worried about. It could perhaps be a, a pain or, or an illness or a sickness we have. We bring all that to God. This is a place where we can come before God and we can come together as a church family and we can ask uh, to receive prayer that God might minister to us through his spirit and through the fellowship of the saints. So, so let's, let's respond uh, and worship tonight and let's recognise God's goodness and grace towards us, all because we now have repentant hearts and all because of his finished work of the resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do thank you for your word and, and we thank you that, that we've been able to unpack what your word says and pray that this wouldn't just remain in this building. What, what we have heard from your word today would remain in our hearts and would impact our lives for your glory. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would change us. We pray that we would be willing to change. We'd be willing to change as well, that, that we wouldn't try and uh, live a life um, with a strange blend of the world and, and Christianity. We would actively choose to be all out for you, wholeheartedly committed to the truth and the promise of your grace. So Lord, we ask that you would bless us as we now respond in worship and as we go into this week. In Jesus' name.